You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 57. This episode is called The Three Love Peace Offerings and Love Commandments. Now this series was originally done by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia as part of the Adult Sunday School Programme. We're coming to the end of this series now. Um, There's another 20 episodes to do. But the synopsis for this episode reads thus. The three peace love offering divisions perfectly match the three great love commandments. Validating that thankfulness is the greatest form of praise to God for those who know and love him. We have to actually believe the testimony of Jesus if we are ever going to see the glory and the beauty in the harmony of all of God's testimony. We are continuing our considerations of how giving thanks serves as the greatest form of praise that we can offer God. It's certainly not the exclusive form of praise, but as with so many other issues, we have to determine the appropriate value ladder in relation to our Creator's perspective. Our goal is to think like God, which is very unnatural. Due to the serpent frame of reference we're born with, and due to the powerful opposing frame of reference of the societies in which we live and operate. Our foundational platform is this in this consideration has been the Thanksgiving altar offering, the first of the three peace offering divisions. The Thanksgiving offering had the greatest restrictions permitting no blemishes in the animal offering and requiring the sacrificial flesh to be consumed in the very first day, without anything remaining beyond that first day, as it had to be incinerated to ashes. The vow offering division of the peace offering still had to be unblemished, but could be eaten on both the first as well as the second days. The free will offering could also be eaten over the first and the second day, but additionally, Certain blemishes were permitted. I was born on a family farm that had been in my family for a number of generations. We were taught never to waste food. So incinerating a significant amount of leftover meat would seem quite wasteful. But this serves to emphasize not only the significance of the consumption timing limitation, but the incineration process as well. This is the curse God imposed due to that creation-corrupting sin that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Dust and ashes are a significant theme in the shadow rituals of that first kingdom age. It's sometimes presented in our community that the laws and rituals of the first kingdom age really don't concern us that the grace and imputed righteousness available to us through Jesus Christ renders the consideration of the many 
rituals of the kingdom of God to be academic at best, without any value to us at this time. But we would then have to ask why Jesus chose such an accomplished scholar of kingdom law to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to us. Are we actually willing to suggest that, well, Jesus must have made a mistake, that the many references to kingdom law throughout Paul's inspired letters are just not significant to us at this time? Well, let's consider how Paul highlights those three divisions of the peace offering to have particular value in the context of our service to God. Now, we've noted quite a number of times Paul's, uh, how Paul's, Paul identifies the altar of burnt offering to Christ and the brothers and sisters of the ecclesial age to the priests of the previous age in Hebrews 13 and 10. This is the platform from which we can ascend the stairs of our reasoning to see a greater and more extensive vision of the glory of God's testimony. So, in Hebrews 13, picking up at verse 10, he writes, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, rather poor translation, but we'll address that in a moment, do good and communicate, to communicate, forget not. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Paul identifies the altar of burnt offering directly with Jesus. This is the altar from which we, in this dispensation of God's unfolding plan, eat the memorial bread and wine, the only two of the six altar offerings that continued from the first kingdom age into the ecclesial age. Paul identifies what we eat from our Christ altar as being inaccessible to the priests of the previous age. This is a reference to the two sin offering categories of the high priest and also for the nation. The blood of the sin offering bullock was applied 12 times to those three stations with the blood being spattered seven times onto the tabernacle veil, smeared onto the four horns of the incense altar, and then the remaining twelfth blood application was poured out at the foot of the Christ altar. As Paul notes, when the blood of the sin offering for the high priest and for the nation was brought into God's sanctuary, the priests were forbidden to eat the flesh of that animal. Despite being the largest of the sin offering categories, the remains of the carcass had to be taken outside the camp to be completely incinerated into dust, into ashes. We've noted in the past how God specifically identifies six carcass components to be incinerated to ashes 
despite commanding that the whole carcass had to be incinerated. In Leviticus chapter 4, we read in the skin of the bullock, first, and all his flesh, two, and his head, three, and with his legs, four, and his inwards, five, and his dung. Even the whole bullock, even the whole bullock, shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. The point Paul is making, however, is that our priesthood is different from the previous priesthood age because we actually partake of the sin offering whose blood, meaning life, was taken into the uh, antitypical holy place, referring to the substance of the holy place, the actual presence of God in heaven and not the shadow of the tabernacle. We read this law in Leviticus chapter 6, and no sin offering whereof, whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burnt in the fire. So first, Paul, that highly educated law scholar, learning at the feet of Gamaliel, Jesus, that Jesus appointed to preach to us Gentiles, parallels us, the ourselves, the ecclesial age brotherhood, to the priests of the previous kingdom age, and also our memorial service ritual to the sin offering. But then he builds on that foundation. Paul exhorts us to follow Jesus outside the camp, meaning that we need to mature beyond the shadow lessons of the first kingdom age to the next education stage in our Creator's progressive plan. The city we seek to enter is not the current Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven, as described in Revelation 21, and defined as being the bride of the, lamb's, of the Lamb, his wife. This is the city we want to enter. Now, let's note the next three points in Paul's developing exhortation. How we can approach that city of salvation. Those, these, these three behavior recommendations by Paul are the three divisions of the peace offering. He says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This is the first of the three behavior patterns that Paul emphasizes and how we can pursue the possibility of entering that eternal city to come, to qualify as the bride of Christ, that new Jerusalem. First, Paul identifies this behavior pattern as qualifying as a sacrifice. Secondly, he defines it as a form of praise. And thirdly, he declares this must be continual, not intermittent, not once in a while, but practiced continually. Then he identifies this continual sacrifice as thankfulness, being offered from the fruit of our lips, 
to that same family name into which we were baptized. And Jesus commanded the disciples to baptize believers into the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that one family name. This is the name we offer our thanks to continually from our lips in our pursuit of the opportunity to enter that city, not the current Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, that bride of the Son of God. So first is the sacrifice of thankfulness, just like the first of the three divisions of the peace offering, that, that love offering. The second behavior pattern Paul advises is that we pursue to do good. Do good. This is an expression of the second peace offering, which was the performance of vows, the promises of the enlightened faithful to God to do good, to fulfill their promises concerning what they had promised to do for God. The third behavior pattern that Paul advises is not to forget to communicate, but that is a rather poor translation of the Greek word kononia, which basically means to keep as common or to share. In fact, most other New Testament translations do translate this as sharing what we have. A couple times, kononia is translated as being generous. And this is an expression of the third peace offering category, the free will offering, what we freely offer. These three behavior patterns that Paul presents as being key to our goal for entering that new city, that salvation city of New Jerusalem, are an exact match to the three divisions of the peace offering, presented in that same progressive order of significance identified by the progressively relaxed restrictions of those peace offerings. First, the praise of giving thanks, Second, doing good, the vow offering. And third, sharing what we have, the free will offering. Paul directly identifies our giving thanks to God as a form of praise. The fruit of our lips being a sacrifice to God. But my contention is that being thankful to God is the greatest form of praise. So let's add some more depth to this kingdom age ritual of the peace offering and those three separate applications of thanksgiving, uh, votive, and free will. We've noted God's testimony concerning the behavioral response he expected from the shadow ritual of the peace offering. God said he wanted merciful love rather than more peace offerings. And he wanted the knowledge of God more than more burnt offerings. We then considered the burnt offering rules in relation to the peace offering instructions in order to understand the relationship between truth and love. That truth has to be the foundation for love, not the other way around. We've noted the particular challenge in our last generation of the ecclesial age in the context of thankfulness. In our exceptionally thankless society, as well as the imbalancing of love and truth, particularly within the enlightened community, in addition to the way the concept of peace 
is corrupted into being understood as an absence, as opposed to a presence. The absence of conflict or disturbance, as opposed to God's understanding of peace qualifying as the presence of harmony, not unity, uh, which is based on a toleration of diversity, but harmony. We have completely inappropriate paradigms imposed on us from every direction that if unrecognized and unresisted will erode away our correct understandings about the terms of God's righteousness. So let's consider that greater depth that's always available in God's testimony. And we recognize we can't possibly fathom that full depth, but it is this depth and breadth and height of the perfect harmony of God's testimony that offers a rocket fuel for our faith, our confidence, our trust in the terms of God's righteousness on the basis of its perfect harmony, but only when understood correctly. Since we know God identifies the peace offering as the love offering, then we should recognize an invitation to consider those three divisions of the peace offering in the context of God's testimony about love. Just as there were three divisions to the shadow ritual of the love offering, there have been three great love commandments presented by God and Jesus Christ. Now, we also considered this uh, in earlier classes over the last year, but now we're building on this understanding. We want to see how that parallel between the three divisions of the love offering and the three great laws of love will testify to our premise that thankfulness serves as the greatest form of praise to God. So let's review those three great love commandments and how they too share that same descending value equation that perfectly matches the significance order of the three love offerings. First is obviously what Jesus identifies as the greatest of all commandments. We read this in Mark chapter 12 in a response to this, that same question. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, and let's listen to this carefully, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's none other commandment greater than these. Well, at least at that time. Um, Jesus identifies two of the three love commandments here in this response. Now, he did add another love commandment. And it was not even two days after this statement. And it was at the Last Supper when he inserted that new commandment between those first two love commandments that are identified here in Mark 12. Now let's just examine that first love commandment, what Jesus defines as the greatest of all the commandments. And let's understand how what Jesus identifies or defines as the greatest 
of all the commandments demonstrates our point exactly about how truth is the foundation, the beginning point, uh, that platform, upon which love must be built. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. But let's recognize the full extent of what Jesus quotes to be the greatest of all commandments. So, in Deuteronomy 6, we read exactly, or almost exactly, what Jesus quoted. Jesus adds one issue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, or life, and all your might. We are not free to concentrate only on the commandment to love, because the Son of God includes that initial statement about God being one as being part of that greatest of all commandments. So let's get past the veil imposed by the transliteration of the name and title of our Creator being used here. We are told, Hear, O Israel, and so pay attention, pay particular attention to this Israel. Yahweh, our Elohim, is one Yahweh. Translating that memorial name of multitudinous title of God into English, this will say, Hear, O Israel, he who shall be our mighty ones is he who shall be one. God will become many who will all be one in him. This is the principle of God manifestation, the principle of multitudinous singularity, that foundational truth, that harmonious truth, that declares the entire plan of the Creator. Jesus presents the greatest of all commandments in the same order as the truth and love offerings. First truth and then love. Love does not challenge truth. Love is built upon truth or love has no appropriate application. But let's note the intensity gauge of this first of all the commandments. We are commanded, by the way. This isn't a recommendation or a mere preference. If we're going to be among those in whom God will become one, we are commanded to love our Creator with all our heart, with all our life, with all our strength. Interestingly, Jesus adds the fourth application uh, of loving God with all our mind. After all, four is the number of God manifestation. Then Jesus notes that second love commandment, at least it was second chronologically, and second in significance at that time, until a couple of days later. But let's again note the significantly lower intensity gauge, that we should certainly love our neighbor, but the required intensity is only as much as we love ourselves. If our greatest love in our life is ourselves, then we are going to live very lonely lives. Which of us does not love our spouse or children, or parents, and sometimes even friends, 
more than we love ourselves. The varying intensities of our various loves in our lives is always defined by the degree of sacrifice that we offer in relation to those separate loves. If we love indulgently, loving ourselves more than everyone else, that's going to be a very lonely life with an awful lot of regrets as the years go by. Sadly, I have heard and read on several occasions in our enlightened community that loving our neighbor actually fulfills the command to love God. This is done by those who invert the love and truth equation. They exalt love above truth. Say truth is subject to love. Let's not go with God's equation. The love comes first. Truth is minimal. These are the ones that are saying that the loving our neighbor actually fulfills the command to love God. Now, that's, that's a particularly dangerous and God-despising lie. That reduces the intensity gauge for loving God to nothing more than the love of self, which is the lowest of all the degrees of love. A little less than two days after Jesus answered that question about what qualifies as the greatest, qualified as the greatest of all commandments, he added a third love commandment. He declared this commandment to be brand new and declared this commandment to be his own personal command. Sadly, this too has been diminished in our community by a number of oddly respected teachers and writers claiming that, well, Jesus was mistaken. He, he spoke incorrectly, that this command was just another restatement of the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've repeatedly noted in these continuing considerations the need for us to actually believe the testimony of God and of Christ, not to contradict them. God is always right. Jesus was perfect, therefore he too was always right. Now, this was our exhortation when we recognized that only one man in the entire world and in the entire enlightened community actually believed the testimony of Jesus, that he would rise from the dead after three days and three nights. It wasn't, it wasn't just Peter who refused to believe Jesus was actually right. There wasn't a single person outside that tomb after those three days waiting for him, except, well, except for the Roman guards. Only one Christadelphian out of that entire generation actually believed Jesus. It was the thief on the cross who asked to be remembered when Jesus, there dying on the cross, would actually initiate his kingdom and take his throne. We also noted how many in our generation today still don't believe the testimony of Jesus, that he would rise from the dead after three days and three nights, preferring the false understanding of the harlot church that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon, came back to life again after two nights and a little more than one day. It was that thief on the cross who was comforted before he died that he would be with Jesus again in paradise. So let's believe Jesus 
when he declares that the love commandment he issued at his last Passover meal was actually a new commandment. And it was his own personal commandment. Because that's exactly what he said. In John 13, um, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. This was a brand new commandment issued to the disciples at the Last Supper for them to love each other the way Jesus loved them. Now, Jesus did not love his disciples only as much as he loved himself, as some have recommended to be the standard for acceptable love, that minimal love of our neighbor. Jesus loved his disciples more than himself, but but not as much as he loved his father. This love, Jesus references, is specifically to be directed to the brotherhood, the love of disciples for disciples, which is not the lesser degree of love required for our neighbors. In John 15, still while at the Last Supper before he leaves to be arrested and tried and crucified, He says in John 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This love for one another, disciple for disciple, based on the degree of love that Jesus demonstrated, this was the personal commandment of Jesus Christ. Jesus provides the intensity gauge as being willing to lay aside our own life for the benefit of our friends in God's community. That is the indication of the Greek word tetemi, which is translated as lay down. It means to place aside. It has a far broader application than simply to sacrifice one's life to die for another much more extensive than that simple presumption. The Apostle Paul certainly was instructed in this new commandment that Jesus defined as his own personal commandment. Uh, He writes to the Galatians in chapter 6, to the brothers and sisters there, bear you one another's burdens. You, You brothers and sisters, take care of each other. You bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul identifies this particular service focus, bearing the burdens of each other in the ecclesia, as being the law of Jesus Christ. The only way we can bear the burdens of each other is to do what Jesus described in his own personal love commandment, to lay aside the burdens of our own life so that we can bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. This intensity gauge is further emphasized by the Apostle uh, in the same chapter, verse 10, uh, where he says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. These are expressions of the second and the third love commandments, with a balancing formula for the correct applications 
of both these loves for our neighbor and for our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to do good for all men, but especially above and beyond for our brothers and sisters in the truth. In fact, that, that same day, uh, the 12th of Nisan, uh, two days before the Passover, after Jesus answered that question about the greatest of all commandments, he presented three judgment parables uh, to four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, two sets of two brothers. The third judgment parable establishes just how important that new commandment of Jesus will be when we are judged by him. And it's determined whether we live forever or die forever. This was the parable of the sheep and the goats. Sadly, this parable has been misrepresented by some in our community as representing Christ's judgment on the nations based on how they were friends or not of the political nation of Israel and therefore qualified as sheep or goats. That is an, ex an absolutely impossible understanding uh, for a number of reasons, but based easily on the concluding verse of that parable of the sheep and the goats. Um, Jesus concludes the parable by saying, these, meaning the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So those who are represented as the sheep in this parable, which are sacrificial animals that were acceptable at the Christ altar, they inherit eternal life. Those represented by the goats, also a divinely acceptable sacrifice at that Christ altar, um, unlike the unenlightened that were never represented as sacrificial animals, those goats suffer an eternal punishment. That final declaration absolutely proves this parable is about the judgment of the enlightened community, not the unenlightened nations. You know, it's, it's upsetting enough just to hear incorrect presumptions about a judgment parable, but it's even more upsetting not to hear or read any objections to such an inappropriate understanding. This third judgment parable establishes that Christ's New love commandment will be part of the terms of our judgment. Therefore, one of the questions to be addressed at our own personal judgment will be, have we loved the least of Christ's brethren? Have we clothed and fed our brothers and sisters in Christ when they've been in need? Have we visited the least of Christ's brethren when sick or lonely? Have we loved the brotherhood more than ourselves and therefore more than our neighbor? We are still required to love, but only as much as ourselves. Our point in recognizing that new love commandment um, Jesus presented at the Last Supper is to realize how the three divisions of the peace offering, that God-defined love offering, parallel the three great love commandments issued by Jesus and, uh, and God. Just like the descending significance of the sacrificial divisions of the love offering, peace offering, there's a corresponding descending value 
and the three love commandments. We should always remember, equality is not a divine principle. Equality is a serpent principle. Just as the Thanksgiving offering was the greatest of the three love offering divisions of that peace offering from which God expected merciful love, so the love of our Heavenly Father is supposed to be the greatest of all loves with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength and all our life. Just as performing one's vows of service to God was the second greatest love offering application, so we have the commandment to love our brothers and sisters in Christ that has to be a greater love than the love for ourselves. And the free will offering, the love offering about sharing what we have, parallels the third love commandment to love our neighbors. But we don't have to love our neighbors more than ourselves, as we have to do with our brothers and sisters, and certainly with our love for God. So this is why I say that thankfulness is the greatest form of praise we can offer God. Now, whether or not you may agree with that primary application of praise being thankfulness, I believe we provided a harmony of evidence with breadth and depth and width to at least ensure a high level of respect for the principle of thankfulness being a very powerful and valuable avenue for praising our Heavenly Father and our Savior. This respect for the value of thankfulness has to be positioned in our understanding and our discipleship in the context of the extreme, unthankful frame of reference being demonstrated in our society today. and even within the enlightened community, particularly in the context of inverting the significance and the order of love and truth. Well, in our next class, we'll be looking at examples of thankfulness um, and to a little bit, uh, the degree, uh, love. Uh, the absence of thankfulness we'll be looking at and the significant danger presented in complaining, at least, in our relation to God and Christ. We'll also have to look at being thankful for the wrong things <laughs> and the righteousness in complaining about certain things. This is because God certainly complained about the enlightened community on quite a number of occasions, as did Jesus, both before and after his immortalization. And our accepted assignment in the pursuit of an eternal relationship with our Creator is to be like him. So, the recommendation at this point in our considerations is not just to, to, to think, to meditate about the spiritual implications of thankfulness, not just to open our eyes to the subtle training in complaining and unthankfulness that we're constantly exposed to in our interactions with the enlightened and the unenlightened community, but to make sure all our prayers include specific issues that we are sincerely thankful for.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.